Well, it is truly good to see all of you here again. I know I've been out for a couple of weeks here on some travels for the seminary, some very good and productive trips, but it is always good to be back home with all of you. I was in the church of one of our alumni last Sunday morning and had the opportunity to preach there and uh, really enjoyed that, but found myself wishing that I was here with you. Uh, And it is good to be back today and to see all of you and to be back together again. You know, as I was flying home last, uh, last Sunday night, um, I, it was one of those moments where you realize that um, you've really kind of hit the airline jackpot, so to speak. Uh, I walked onto the airplane, and I sat down in my seat, and I was blessed with an exit row seat. And I said, wow, it doesn't really get much better than this. I mean, this is about as first class as we're going to get back here in economy, you know. And uh, then all of a sudden, they, they went ahead and shut the door. And to my great surprise, I realized that the exit row seat next to me was also empty. And I said, it does not get any better than this. I mean, this is as good as it gets. I mean, I have been most blessed here in my life today. And as the flight took off, I realized that not only did I have extra space, I also had extra screens. And so I pulled up both of the little television screens that were those, you know, prop-up things that come up on the airplane seat. I had the news on one, I had the, air, the flight tracker on the other, and I'm using both of the screens, I'm saying, this is, this is really awesome. I'm going to get some stuff done on this flight. So then I pulled out my, uh, my laptop, right, and I've got Wi-Fi connection, and I'm there, I'm doing my email and my text messages, and I've got internet access, and I'm doing the whole thing. On the seat next to me, I've got my iPad there with a document that's opened, and I've got my my iPhone with my music, and I'm all plugged in, and I'm just, I mean, I am going places, like across the country, places. And the stewardess walks by, and she looks down at me, and she says, you know, sir, I don't think I've ever seen anyone use more screens on an airplane in my life. But there for, you know, five hours or so, I was saying to myself, this is pretty awesome. But as I started thinking about her comment, it really struck me how much technology has revolutionized our lives, right? In every possible aspect in life, technology has somehow touched us in sometimes extremely significant ways. And as I got up and paced up and down, because you can only handle five screens for so long, I noticed that everyone else on that airplane also had a screen open. I mean, gone are the days where people, you know, read books and newspapers and, and wrote in their journals and diaries on airplanes. I mean, they're, they're all using technology. And it, and it struck me that this new aspect of life has really profoundly impacted every single one of us. And I began to think about it and do some research on all my various screens. How should a believer think about this? How should we as followers of Jesus Christ interact with this? How should we harness this kind of power? How do we use these tools in a way that honors him? Because we all know that there are most assuredly ways that we can use those tools that dishonor him. And so I thought to myself, you know, this would really be a very helpful series, not only, I think, for our group, but also for me in my own life. How do we think about utilizing technology in a way that honors the Lord? 
And so for the next several weeks, I really want us to open up the Word of God and study this out together, because I think that there are some principles that would be very, very helpful to us. You know, we're really at the point now in society where we have generations that are actually being defined by their relationship to technology. You look at the way that sociologists have actually begun classifying the various generations of American history, and it's, it's interesting reading because you go back and you look at people who were born between 1944 and 1964, and they may, there may be some of you in this room who were born during that period of time. It's the generation that's widely known as being the, the baby boomer generation, right? And they're primarily characterized by uh, it being an age of prosperity, it being an age of good feelings. That's what sociologists say about that particular age. And it's, it's characteristic of, of people who were born in those years that they, they tend to think a certain way. And, and even Generation X, right, that was the next generation that came along, 1965 to 1979, they're really characterized by, by sociologists, by the way that they think. But around 1980, starting in 1980, people who were born 1980 and on, sociologists actually characterize them not by how they think, or by how, by how they tend to think as a, as a large cultural group, but rather, but rather how, they, how they interact. From 1980 through 1995, you find the millennial generation. Now, that generation, I am one of them, can be much maligned at certain times. But they're also known as being digital pioneers, right? They're technological pioneers. And then from 1996 through 2015, you have another generation that's more commonly known as the I generation or Gen Z, right? And their status is not by being known as, as technological pioneers, but rather as digital natives, right? These are people who, who grew up knowing all about technology, and, and now we're in a new generation, 2016 and on, that hasn't even been defined yet because it remains to be seen what level of interactivity this new generation is going to have with their technology. But all that to say, it's very interesting to note that technology has impacted us so profoundly that generations are now being characterized by their relationship not to one another, not to a certain pattern of thinking, but to how they interact with a particular kind of device. It just goes to demonstrate that, that things have radically changed all around us, and they're never going back to the way that they once were. And therefore, we need to figure out how do we think rightly, biblically, in a way that is godly, about these certain things. Now, I remember when I was a younger man uh, getting my very first cell phone, right? I was in high school, and uh, I had a job as a kind of a warehouse manager for a, a flooring company. And my boss one day walks into the office, and he hands me this giant brick of a phone. And he says, this is your new best friend. Keep this on at all times so that I can get, get a hold of you. Well, I did not need to be asked twice, because when I took that brand new thing called a cellular telephone into my youth group at church at, for Wednesday night prayer meeting and had that thing hanging on my hip and I'm, <laughs> I'm walking crooked in the room like this, man, you want to talk about the ultimate status symbol, right? Where all my friends are looking at me like, what is that thing? Wow. You should have seen us afterwards trying to play basketball with that thing clipped to the hip, you know? And then the next day, he calls me at 6 o'clock in the morning. 
and I realize, wait a minute, maybe this isn't quite so cool as I thought it was last night when I was with all my friends. Things have kind of fundamentally changed and altered. And from that point on, the pace of technological advancement and my engagement with it did not slow down or cease. It only increased and picked up as society moved along and innovation continued to move forward. You know, it's really true that technology, it's a ubiquitous presence in our lives. You know, you walk through a home improvement store like Lowe's, for instance, and you'll find that everything has Bluetooth technology implanted deep into the, the very hardwiring mechanisms of, of the way our appliances work. Our, our microwaves, our dishwashers, our refrigerators are all now internet connected. I mean, I have not figured out yet why you would need an internet connected dishwasher, but they sell them. And they're selling a lot of them, right? Thermostats, deadbolts, light switches, light bulbs. You know, the, the Internet, it has gone beyond these unique portals, and it's now invaded everything in life. They call it now the Internet of Things. And the result of this is a, it's a massive disruption. Right? It's a massive disruption to our lives and to our relationships. But beyond that, it has disrupted the marketplace. It's disrupted shopping patterns, our, our financial interactions, the way we pay our bills, the way we communicate, the way we get news. It's, it's impacted and disrupted the way we engage in interpersonal relationships. It's disrupted the way we access our entertainment, our, our transportation, our job market, even our, our very family dynamics. There's an app for that and for everything. You see, technology, it's, it's adjusted the way that we adjust our air conditioning. We get our groceries. We get to work. And what I do at work when I get there and how I interact and, and how I communicate with almost everyone in my world. That You see, the, these tools that we've been newly granted, that have been newly minted and handed to us, they are, they are very, very powerful. But they're also very, very dangerous. And as believers we look around and we find that there is really no pattern for how to handle this. There's, there's, there's nothing there. There's, there's no historical precedent for that which we're facing. There's no generational wisdom. There's no family tradition. There's no church history perspective on the, on the appropriate usage of technology. I mean, it's kind of like handing a chainsaw to a toddler, right? What could possibly go wrong here? The moment you think that you've got this and you know exactly how to use it is the moment that you're going to chop something off. And we look into the scriptures and we say, well, there's, there's no specific verse that addresses how to rightly use the iPhone. That how, I mean, where do we find the principles to know how to interact correctly? And before we just give up in despair and say, well, there's really nothing in, in the scriptures that deal with this, I, I would take issue with that. Before we just give up, I want to remind us of what Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 say. It says this. It says, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So, therefore, there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which someone might say, see this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. And even though our devices may be quote-unquote new, the content that they deliver us, the, the issues that they bring to us, the, the way that we engage with them is actually not at all new. You see, everything about the way that we use 
the technology that we have been given that has been inserted rather intrusively into our lives, the devices may be new, but the issues that they bring with them are certainly not. And so I want us to go back and find out what are the biblical principles that would rightly govern our interaction with our technological devices. How do we live in the way that God wants us to as it relates to this new field of technology? How does a redeemed individual, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, make his or her way in this brave new world? And I think for us to answer that question would be most helpful for us to go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Because Ephesians chapter 4 is really the classic passage on what God expects from the life of of a believer. And when it comes to technology, the principles are absolutely no different at all. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, right away in verse 1, Paul, the author, says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he spends the next two chapters of his book really fleshing out what that worthy walk looks like. And in the process, I think he's going to give us some very helpful principles to know what a worthy technological walk should look like. I mean, what is the distinction of a Christian's phone or computer or internet usage? That's what I want us to look at together today and for the next couple of weeks. I think it's going to be a helpful study for us. But really, here's the bottom line. Here's the foundation of what I want us to see in the time we have left together here today. And I just noticed the clock, along with everything else, is gone in the room. And so who knows when we'll finish this. <laughs> okay? What I want us to see together is this. Okay, right away. We can call this a theology of technology. All right, this is the most fundamental truth that we need to see from the scriptures. All right, that in order to relate correctly with our technology, we must first in, be engaged biblically with life. Okay, in order for us to use our technology the way that God would have us use it, we first have to be living the way that God would have us to be living. All right, and, and that's what I want us to see here from Ephesians chapter 4. Four reminders, really, on, on how to live biblically. And, and we're going to make the application point of all these reminders, really, how they apply to the usage of our technology. Now, just as a disclaimer, before we jump into these reminders on how we are to live biblically, these principles really apply to every area of life, not just your technology. It's just that that's going to be our application of these principles, okay? So I do want us to be aware heading into this that I'm going to intentionally bring the scope of our applicational focus down to a specific issue. But these principles are actually much broader, and I would encourage you to be thinking about them as it relates to the rest of your life, okay? So the first thing that we're reminded of here in this text, I want us to pick it up in verse 9, is that the worthy walk really remembers the cost, it remembers the cost, verses 9 and 10. It says, now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. You say, well, what in the world is he talking about there? What are those verses about? Those verses are about the cost of what it took 
to win you back out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of light, the beloved Son of God. Here is what he did to accomplish that work. And I think the inherent admonition in that text is that we need to keep that price tag constantly in front of us. Now, this past week, I was in Washington, D.C. for some meetings, and I was finished up a little bit early with those meetings, and around 9 o'clock or so, I thought, you know, I'm going to go walk around the National Mall and just see what's there. So I actually ended up renting one of those little scooters, you know, I mean, you can get around on those things. I don't think you're supposed to do it at night on the sidewalk, but there was no one else there, and I, there was no sign that said don't do it, so I did. And I drove five miles in like 45 minutes around on one of these scooters just tooling around the Capitol. I don't know if that's a smart thing to do at night when there's no one else around. You might get killed or mugged or something. But, but I went ahead and did it. And I found myself, as I kind of zoomed up to the Korean War Memorial, I mean, you've got these, these bronze figures that kind of rise up out of the darkness in the midst. It's really kind of an eerie spot at night. But there was this amazingly profound memorial to the men who lost their lives fighting in the Korean War. And there's this brass sign that's written across the bottom of the memorial that says, freedom isn't free, right? And then you go from there and you go around to the Vietnam Memorial and you see all the names that are etched on the wall. You go to the World War II Memorial and you see all the different states that have had multiple thousands of men who have given their lives in the service of our country and the preservation of our freedom. And at every one of those places, you're being reminded that there was a cost associated with the freedoms that we now enjoy. And the next day, you drive across the river and you see there on that hillside Arlington National Cemetery with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of tombstones marking the graves of those who have died to provide us with the freedoms that we have. It's amazing. Freedom isn't free. How much more applicable is that concept to our spiritual lives? And here's the reason why. The cost of your freedom in Christ is so much greater and infinitely larger in scope and magnitude than any number of lost lives here upon this earth. And the reason for this is given to us right here in verses 9 and 10. We're reminded that our freedom was not free. It cost an awful lot. I mean, we're told here, that Now this expression, he ascended into heaven, you have to first grapple with, Paul says, what that means. Here's what it means. It can only mean except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. That is the cost of your redemption and your freedom. And what you see there in that text, the inherent picture is this. Here you have a God who is high and lifted up and exalted and, and everything about him is counter, everything about him being made lowly and descending, it's counter to his very nature. You see, he is separate from sin. He cannot even abide to look upon it. He is pristine and perfect in a way that, that we cannot even fathom. He is so pure that whenever mankind catches even the smallest glimpse of him, they fall down as though being dead. And this is the holy God who determined it good and necessary to condescend to the lowest parts of the earth for the simple purpose of his desire to reconcile you to himself. That is 
an unspeakable cost. This lower parts of the earth, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, describes it for us. We're told, Paul writes in the book of Philippians, he says, although Christ existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what's being referred to here in verse 9. That the cost of your redemption, the cost of your freedom in Christ, was a trip by God to the grave. It meant him taking upon himself and his infinite nature our unpayable penalty for our sin. He was the only one who could pay it, and so he did. And we're told here that that cost, it comes with a responsibility. The result is that we now live lives that are marked, marked by our awareness of what the Father spent in bringing many sons to himself, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. The cost, it comes with a responsibility. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.18. He says, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but instead with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, he says this, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, here's the ramification, glorify God in your body, the way that you live. And I think right there we find the very first thing that it's important for us to remember. We, as we live in general, but as we interact with these little devices, we have to start building our theology of tech by remembering the cost of what it took for us to be who we are. And the danger that comes with us forgetting that cost is the danger of disrespectfulness. You see, it's possible to disrespect the cost of Christ's sacrifice in innumerable ways. Hebrews 10.29 says, and it tells us, that it's a big deal to trample underfoot the Son of God and to defile the blood by which you were bought. It's an insult, the author of Hebrews tells us, to the Spirit of God Himself. It's a big deal to forget about the cost and to disrespect Him. There's many ways to do this. But when you add in an, in, an internet connection, the ways by which we're able to disrespect the cost of what it took to redeem us escalate and explode exponentially. You see, with the introduction of technology, the avenues by which we can be disrespectful, they, they multiply all around us. In an online world that seeks to numb themselves up with a whole bunch of foolishness, are we using our technology in a way that is sober and reflective of our awareness of the cost that it took to redeem us? In an online world that seeks to deceive and betray and proclaim every shade of different falsehoods, are we using our technology in a way that reflects our knowledge of truth? The fact that it took a high price to redeem us. In an online world that's marked by unspeakable levels of depravity, are we using our technology in a way that is pure and consistent with those whose lives have been redeemed at such a high cost? You see, if we're people who are marked by the blood of Christ, then our entire lives 
including our interaction with our technology, should be marked as well. And that goes for the usage of our devices, our internet connections, and our integration with the rest of our culture. So my question for us this morning as we look into this text and examine the cost of our redemption, do we use our technology in a way that demonstrates that we understand that cost? Modern technology, as we've said, it's a very powerful tool. It's a, it can be a great force for good, but it's also a force for profound evil. Basically, this little gra- glass and silicone brick, it's a mirror into your very soul. I mean, Jesus said it best, right? It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It is also out of the heart that you access and utilize your device. It's a mirror of who you actually are. And so as you look at that mirror, what does it say about you? Does it say that you're using it as a tool that that understands the reality of what Christ has done for you? Or are you using it as a tool to trample underfoot the sacrifice that he paid so that you might know him? Are you using it to assist you in attaining your worthy walk? I think the first thing that we're confronted with here in this text and this theology we're trying to build is that we must remember at the most basic fundamental level, the cost of what it took for us to be who we are. And that goes for every area of life, but particularly when it comes to how we use these tools that we've been given. The second thing he wants us to see here is that we also must remember the goal of our life as well, not just the cost of what our life took, but also the goal for what we're to be doing. That's what he wants us to see. He says here in verses 11 through 13, Here's what you're supposed to be doing. Christ won the right to give gifts to men through the cost of that he paid. And and here's what he does with the right that he won. He uses that victory to give some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's the goal. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, that's the goal. To being a mature man, that's the goal. Until we've measured up to the, stat, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, that's the goal. Paul is saying, don't forget the goal. Remember why you're here. And as you interact in various ways with various different things in life, no matter which age you live in, an ancient world or a modern world, don't forget the goal. The reason that Christ paid that cost is so that you might now know him. See, if we're God's people, then we need to care about the things that he cares about. That's now a whole point of our brand new lives. So what does God care about? Well, these verses tell us. We're told that he cares about the building of his body, and he cares about your sanctification. We're told that he gave some for the building of the body, right there in verse 12. He wants to see the body of Christ built so that his name might be glorified. Gives us this job description, these spiritual gifts. Now, every single one of us, your giftedness may not be listed here in this verse, but that's not the point. The point is that you have a gift and your gift may be mentioned somewhere else in Scripture. The point here is that Jesus paid the price and with that victory he turned around and gave all of us spiritual gifts that he intends for us to use for the building up of the body of Christ. There's a need that must be met. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture that that every one of us are specially equipped to meet that need. 
There's only a few of the gifts listed here, but it's enough to show us that every single person who is redeemed has a place within the church of God and that they're in that place to meet a specific need of the body of Christ. That's what God cares about, and therefore it's what we should be caring about. And he says, and you're to exercise that gift until we all attain to the status of being a mature adult, which is the second thing he cares about, your sanctification. Verse 13, here's the objective. It's to see maturity developed, maturity that belongs to the full formation of Christ in us. Christ in us that comes to the knowledge of Christ. I mean, elsewhere in Scripture, I believe it's in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What we're being called to remember here is the goal of our spiritual life. We're to use our gifts to advance the knowledge of Christ in one another's lives so that maturity might be generated as we grow together in the knowledge of Christ. You see, there's a lot at stake in you being directly involved in building up the body of Christ. There's a, a profound need and a profound responsibility that comes with that. That takes a lot of proactive work, both in your life as you pursue the knowledge of Christ and in your engagement with the body of Christ as you seek to encourage others to do exactly the same thing. But here's the fundamental truth standing behind verses 11 through 13. Everything in your life is supposed to be aimed at you fulfilling the call of God upon your life. That is the goal. He's given you a mission. He's given you the gifts and the resources necessary to accomplish that mission. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says it this way, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be what? Pleasing to Him means caring about his people. It means caring about your, uh, your, your maturity. Remember the goal. And here I want us to see the danger that technology can present to us. The danger here is the danger of distraction. Distraction from the goal that we see here in this text. We've seen the danger already of, of, of disrespect, but here we see the danger of distraction. Don't forget the cost. And don't forget what he tells us here, that here is your goal. One of the greatest traps that comes with technology is the distraction that comes with it. Really, the addiction, you could say, the enslavement that comes to these little mobile devices and the inherent distraction that accompanies that enslavement. I mean, recently, I think it was in the most recent iteration of the iPhone software, the platform that they use, the iOS software, they made a very important addition to the software. It was called Screen Time, right? You can access it through your settings function. And when they rolled that out, I will stand here and tell you, I was absolutely amazed at the first time that I picked up that app, opened it up, and saw a little electronic analysis of my usage of my cell phone. I mean, I think I picked it up something like 300 times a day, right? I mean, it, it logs the number of hours that you've spent in certain applications. It logs the cumulative time that you've sat there like this. And it logs every single time that you pick it up. I'm just jacking that count up right now, right? <laughs> it was shocking. And I opened it up and I looked at it and I said, 
If I'm picking up my cell phone 300 times a day and I'm spending X number of hours using this thing for the purpose of good, still, that says to me that I am not focused. I am distracted because there's no possible way for me to be deeply and profoundly focused if I'm using this thing that much. And I had to make some serious adjustments. So I get home now, and for the most part, I stick my phone in the drawer with the keys, and it doesn't come out for a few hours, right? Because I don't want to be distracted when I'm with my family. I don't want to be distracted from the things that God has called me to in my life. I want to be focused because we are people who are called to be focused, not on our own priorities, but those of God. He has given to us a goal and a mission, and we cannot afford to be distracted. You see, even the world around us recognizes the inherent dangers of distraction. I mean, you have now social media major platforms and, and these massive conglomerate companies putting in place limitations on how much their technology can be used because they recognize the dangers that come with a life of chronic distraction. Distraction, it destroys relationships, lives, and homes, and frankly, it makes us ineffective because we're not focused on the goal of what God has put in front of us. Your need to be connected. It's not like a basic need for water, food, clothing, shelter. If you're part of Gen Z, I'm sorry in particular. That's not the case, right? So the question before us that rises up out of this text is your engagement with technology, is it enabling you to fulfill the need that God has prepared and gifted you for? Or is it in the way? You see, we can't afford to be distracted from real people by virtual friends. We can't afford to be distracted from our family members by the news feed that continues to update in front of us. We can't afford to be distracted from building up the church by a total absolute cesspool of junk food entertainment and clickbait. We cannot afford to be distracted from the word of God by a never-ending flood of information. We have to be people who are focused, focused on the goal of what God has put in front of us. I mean, we're commanded at so many places in Scripture to simply be still and reflect upon the knowledge that God is the one who is in control. Be still and know that I am God, he says. Don't be chronically distracted in your life in the way that you engage with the world around you. You see, what we're told here in Ephesians chapter 4, it's very clear. Our goal is to see the fullness of Christ formed within us and in the people of God around us. And the use of our technology, it can help that cause or it can destroy that cause. But the question in this text is this, as you engage in life, are you focused on the right objective? Okay? The next thing that he tells us here, really the, the third thing that he wants us to remember about living a godly life, is that we must also remember the stakes. Remember the stakes, verse 14. He says, don't just, don't forget the cost, don't forget the goal, but don't forget what's at stake either. He says, as a result of being formed in Christ, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, if you've taken your eyes off the goal, there's a lot at stake because you're still a child and the ramifications of being a child in a grown-up world are extremely severe. 
And he explains it to us here. He says, you will be tossed and you will be carried. It's interesting there, that word tossed. It's the only place in scripture where this word is really used. It's, it's a word that has kind of a violent imagery behind it. it it's the image of, some, of someone being like a rag doll, right? right? The, the emphasis is, is on them having lost control and being constantly battered up against the rocks on the shoreline. Now, I remember very well and you probably do too, because I've told the story before. But the day at Zuma Beach, it's why when we have our mainstream beach breakfasts, you won't really see me down there in that water on a bodyboard, right? Because on that day, I remember it very well. I remember getting sucked up to the top of that wave. I was out there body surfing. This is great, right? And there comes this giant wave out of nowhere. And as I get up to the top of that thing, I'm looking down the pipe, and I'm saying, this is going to be the best ride of my life. There was one problem. I am not from California, and therefore I don't know how to ride a 10-foot wave at all, right? I was immature in my understanding of how to navigate this thing, and I was too immature to recognize that, dude, you are in serious danger right now. And it wasn't until I was getting my face ground into the sand over and over and over again that I realized there's a problem here, and you're going to die and even if you live, you're definitely going to be paralyzed. But the imagery here in this word is essentially that. It's this over and over and over again, face grinding, back breaking, battering, smash, smash, smash. That's how I felt. And that's this word, right? That's this word of what it means to be tossed, right? I mean, just boom, boom, boom. You're, you're getting tossed by the world and by life. And, and Paul is saying here, if you don't grow up in Christ, you won't recognize the danger and your face is going to get pile-driven down into the bedrock of that ocean floor. It's going to batter you and break you. And then he goes on and he says, and you're going to get carried away. That word carried, it's a word that essentially means to be laying there limp like a half-drowned rat, kind of like I was, where the wind, it picks you up and it carries you in the current to who knows where. And the emphasis on this word is not just being carried, it's about being carried all over the place, around, hither, and yon, and to nowhere in particular. Carried by what? Who knows? And Paul goes on in the text and he defines the things that carry us all around when we're not mature in Christ. He says the wind, it's unpredictable. The wind of men's trickery, the, that word is, is, it means to be intentionally cunning. It, it's a word that in the original language means to be tricky at dice, right? It's a word that means to show you one thing, but then by sleight of hand, do another. It's a word that means to defraud you. It says you will be defrauded if you're not mature. He goes on and he talks about craftiness there in that verse. Craftiness by deceitful scheming. It's the same idea as being tricky, but it's a little bit more intentional here. That word crafty, it's not just trying to be tricky to trick you. It's intentionally seeking to injure you. You see, the world, they set out to lay a trap, this deceitful scheming. And the point that Paul is trying to, to drive home is this. The world is a dangerous place for the immature child of God. I mean, you and I, we would never let our elementary-aged children wander through Skid Row alone. They need to grow up, not a little bit, but a lot, before they're ready to go on that kind of a little field trip by themselves, if ever. But like it or not, 
until you die and are removed from this planet, you're in the middle of a very, very dark alleyway with all sorts of people around you who want to trick you, who want to deceive you, who want to destroy you. They set out, like the psalmist says, to ensnare and entrap with bloodshed on their minds. And the only option you have is to grow up because the alternative is disaster. Paul is calling us here to remember that the stakes in spiritual growth, the stakes in the Christian walk, they're, they're really pretty high. And the danger that we find here, if we forget these stakes, is the danger of delusion. That's the danger that we see here in this point. If you take it and flip it on its head, the danger of delusion. Because when we begin to engage with a dangerous world with tools this powerful, we find that there is no place more dangerous, more unpredictable, that is more tricky or crafty than the internet. You want to know how to get slammed by the surf and carried away? Just go surfing on the world wide web. At the last count that I could find, there are over 4.5 billion sites that have been cataloged by search engines on the internet. And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the sites that are there that have not been cataloged. That's 4.499 billion sites that are primarily dedicated to the representation of a secular worldview that are intentionally seeking to delude you. You see, an immature person is a person who is mature in their perspective towards worldliness. It's unavoidable. And a person who is spiritually mature is going to be immature to the world. If there's not maturity in Christ, then you will be influenced by the world. And even if it's not gross or overt immorality or every and any other kind of human vice, then there's the issue of basic fundamental worldview. The way that you're being influenced to think by the things that you're viewing, the things that you're reading, the things that are infiltrating your homes and your mind. And at the most basic level, technology has succeeded in making every wind of trickery and every deceit of craftiness available to you at your very fingertips. I mean, never in the history of mankind has it been easier to access worldliness. There is no more dangerous place for immaturity to be displayed, captured, manipulated, or leveraged than on the internet. The stakes, you see, they've never been higher for you as you seek to walk a worthy walk. The technology explosion, it requires that you be made mature in Christ. And if you're not growing, then you have no hope of making it in today's world. The stakes have never been higher. You must be made mature, complete, and full in Christ because that is the only antidote, the only antivirus software, the only screening tool that you have to protect you from the absolute tsunami of garbage that is coming your way. We have to be able to be mature enough to recognize these dangers and to flee these delusions. There's a fourth point that we find here in verses 15 through 16. We'll get to it next week, but we're told in verses 15 and 16 to also remember Christ's expectations for those whom he has redeemed. But I think for now, it's enough for us to start with these first three. I think I would just encourage us to remember that the dangers of engaging casually with our technology are immense. It's easy to be disrespectful. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be deluded in our world today. 
And because of that, we have to remember the cost of what it took. We have to remember the goal of what he set out for us and to remember that which is at stake. See, these are, these are serious issues. We have to intentionally assess our lives. So is the answer here for us this morning as we think about this, my goal and intention was not to just scare you from this text. The answer is not to cut all this off and just go back to a first century life and to throw our phones in the toilets and you know, destroy all of our technology. That's not possible. Because social media, the internet, search engines, mobile devices, computer processing, they are all tools of modern life and they have changed for good. We're not going back to the good old days the way it was. And they can either aid us in faithful living, they can be harnessed to make our lives productive and our testimonies loud, or they can be used to undermine our discipleship, to destroy our families enable a wandering heart and to fly in the face of the fear of God. It's imperative, I think, that we take stock of what God expects from us and align our usage of how we use these devices accordingly so that we can be people who are marked and characterized by lives of faithfulness, even in this advanced area, in an advanced age. So just as a reminder, in order to relate correctly with technology, you must first engage biblically in the way you live. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It is ancient text with very applicable truth. Even in the world that we walk in, the apostles who wrote these texts had no way of seeing or knowing the things and the issues and the delivery mechanisms that we would be faced with in our world today. And yet, because these words came from you. They are inspired. They are weighty. And if we choose to live by them, depending upon the power of the Spirit to apply these principles, we will find that your truth never changes. And it is every bit as useful for us in knowing how to deal with these things as it has been through every age, because you and your truth do not change. And for that, we are grateful, because in you, we find hope, we find direction, we find purity in the righteousness of Christ, and that is your greatest gift to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.